Welcome to the Movie Planet Season 4, Episode 4. This week we're talking about 2005's King Kong. With Joe. Mike's died doing what he believed in. He didn't die for nothing. I'll tell you something else. I'm going to finish this film for Mike. And Josh. God damn it, Preston, we're going to finish this film for Herb. Welcome to the Movie Planet Season 4, Episode 4. Joining me again is the Jack Driscoll to my Carl Denham. Josh, welcome back, sir. Hello. Thanks it, for having me. It's a pleasure. It's always good to have you here. Josh is nominated 2005's King Kong for the Action Adventure Pantheon and just in time for Valentine's Day. A love story. Love story. It's so cute. Uh, on this show, we'll be keeping track of all the movies worth your time in our Movie Planet Preserve. And remember, in order for it to be in there, we have to, we have to nominate and go over it. So this list you're about to hear... Seems a little thin, <laughs> but it's only because we did the entire Die Hard franchise. So, at number one spot is Die Hard with an A, a 12 out of 12. Perfect. Number two, Die Hard with a Vengeance with a B plus, a 10 out of 12. Die Hard, Live Free or Die Hard, a B plus, which was also a 10 out of 12, but it doesn't have Sam Jackson, so it was one spot lower. Makes sense. Uh, Point Break, 1991's Point Break came in with a C plus. Die Hard 2 with a D plus. Ooh. And then A Good Day to Die Hard. D minus. Someone's got to bring up the rear. <laughs> die, and if, if for those of you that don't remember, a good day to die hard is where we coined the F-35 moment in films when you go, nope, that's jumping the shark. He just jumped on an F-35 plane. Okay. Yes. Uh, now, the higher the grade we give it, the longer it may be staying there. Only a film with a higher grade can kick it out on its butt from the preserve in the future. So we will discuss this movie, and in an hour or so, probably longer, we will analyze it and grade it and figure out if we need to boot a movie out. And this week, we are talking about 2005's King Kong, a movie made for an estimated, according to Wikipedia, $207 million that brought in $562.3 million. Not bad, not bad. Not bad, not, I mean, decent. That would have been a failure if it was Justice League. <laughs> uh, based on a story by Marion C. Cooper and Edgar Wallace, written by Fran Walsh, Philip Aboyans, and Peter Jackson, and directed by Peter Jackson, the same crew that brought you the Lord of the Rings movies brings you a movie just as long. And music by James Newton Howard. Ooh. Not Howard Shore. I love me some Howard Shore. He's in this. That's what I have to say about that. <laughs> Starring Naomi Watts as Andero, Jack Black as Carl Denham, Adrian Brody as Jack Driscoll, Thomas Kretschmann as Captain Englehorn, Colin Hanks as Preston, Andy Serkis as Kong, and Lumpy the Chef. I never knew his name. Yes, yeah, Lumpy. Lumpy. Kyle Chandler, Coach Taylor as Bruce Baxter, <laughs> and Howard Shore as the orchestra pick conductor at the end. Fantastic. Yes. But now that we've had that business, let's get down to business. Time for Inception to Perception. Don't get on the set, get ready to shoot, and then ask for rewrites. Studios do this crap all the time, and they wonder why they end up with a shit movie. Smoke and mirrors, guys. Welcome to the movie factory. Movie? You know, I hate the word movie. I don't make movies, I make films. Okay, from the beginning, Peter Jackson is a big fan of King Kong. Like, super fan big. He saw the original when he was nine, justifiably cried when Kong died. When, was, when he was 12, he tried to make a homemade movie of King Kong, and even though he never finished this low-budget attempt, it did inspire him to become a filmmaker. Interesting. Yes. Well, was that one of your inspirations to do film? King Kong? Yeah. The original? No. Actually, like Tombstone, maybe. <sighs> that was on TV today. Is that how you spent your day? Uh, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I can't blame you. Uh, so in 1995, while Jackson was filming The Frighteners, Universal Pictures was clamoring to lock this guy down for another project. They offer him the chance to remake The Creature from the Black Lagoon from 1954. Jackson turns it down then, but let's slip that he's kind of a big King Kong fan. And Universal says, well, let's do that then. Now, for you purists out there, yes, RKO Pictures did the original, but the movie is held in public domain. So anybody can make this thing, even 12-year-old Peter Jackson. I did not know that. Jack, it's like a Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, anybody can touch it. Yeah. Jackson turns it down, though. However, Peter Jackson later was quoted as saying, quote, I quickly became disturbed by the fact that someone else would take it over and made it in, make it into a terrible film. That haunted me, and I eventually said yes to Universal. <laughs> Greedy guy. Okay. <laughs> At the same time, Jackson was working with Harvey Weinstein and Miramax Films to purchase the film rights of The Hobbit, 
in The Lord of the Rings, while 20th Century Fox was trying to hire him for the 2001 remake of Planet of the Apes. Oh, wow. Jackson turned down Planet of the Apes, and because Weinstein was taking longer than expected to buy The Lord of the Rings rights, Jackson decided to move forward on King Kong. Weinstein's pissed. Understandably. Yes. And as a result, Jackson proposed a deal between Universal and Miramax that the two studios would equally finance King Kong with Jackson's production company, Wingnut Films. Universal would receive distribution rights in the United States, while Miramax would cover foreign territories. Jackson was also warranted, and this is genius, the right of final cut privilege, a percentage of the gross profits, as well as artistic control. This deal gets even better later on. Universal allowed all filming and visual effects to be handled entirely in New Zealand. They shake on the deal in April of 96. Well, what happened then? Glad you asked. (laughs) So Jackson and his wife, Fran, start working on the script. Now, in the original draft, Anne was the daughter of famed English archaeologist Lord Linwood Darrow, exploring ancient ruins in Sumatra, home of the Great Coffee. They would come into conflict with Denham during his filming, and they would uncover a hidden Kong statue and the map of Skull Island. This would indicate that the island natives were the last remnants of a cult religion that had once thrived on Asia's mainland. Instead of a playwright, Jack was the first mate and an ex-World War I fighter pilot still struggling with the loss of his best friend, who had been killed in battle during a World War I prologue. The cameraman, Herb, is the only supporting character in the original draft who made it into the final version. The fight between Kong and the three Velocirexes uh, <laughs> also changed from the original draft. In the draft, Anne was actually caught in the Velocirex's jaws, where she becomes wedged and slashed by the teeth. Ooh. After the fight, Kong gets her out, but she is suffering from a fever from which she then recovers. Much different movie. Yes. But, okay, so the, there was a fever that she recovered from. That's, that seems... Kong's a doctor. Yeah. Oh, good. Good yeah. for him. Dr. Kong. Dr. Kong. <laughs> I didn't spend six years in evil medical school to be called Mr. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Casting-wise, Jackson is considering Minnie Driver but flies out to the Titanic set and talks to Kate Winslet about being Anne Darrow. Jackson is also thinking Clooney for Jack Driscoll and Robert De Niro for Carl Denham, but then things stall in January of 97. See, it turns out Universal gets cold feet when they saw that Godzilla was going to be released in 1998, as well as Mighty Joe Young and the eventual 2001 film Planet of the Apes with Marky Mark Wahlberg. (laughs) So Universal abandons King Kong, and Jackson says... Well, there's always this Tolkien series. I guess I can get moving on Lord of the Rings. Yeah, no problem. I'll just <laughs> jump over to that little project right there. Fast forward to 20, 2003. After the two towers is released, Universal shows up at Jackson's doorstep saying, uh, can we restart production on King Kong? And uh, March of 2003, Universal set a target for December 2005 release date, and Jackson and Walsh brought the Lord of the Rings co-writer Philip Aboyans on to help rewrite their 96 script. Because it was okay to take it. We just didn't uh, want that script. So this thing's been sitting there, though, for seven years at this point. Yes. And anybody could have made this, too. Yes. Jackson offers New Line Cinema the opportunity to co-finance with Universal, but they declined. Universal and Jackson originally projected a $150 million budget, which eventually rose to $175 million. Jackson made, this is the best part, Jackson made a deal with Universal whereby he would be paid a $20 million salary against 20% of the box office gross for directing, producing, and co-writing. He shared that fee with co-writers Walsh, which also covered her producing credit, which means he and his wife were actually taking 40%. Oh my gosh. And buoyance. Now, however, if King Kong were to go over its $175 million budget, the penalties would be covered by Jackson's share. So basically he secured his 20% of the box office. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I don't know who their accountants were, but they weren't thinking that day. (laughs) Jackson brings a bunch of his comrades and crew from The Return of the King to work on this film. They revise the screenplay so it's based on the 1933 script instead of the 96 (laughs) script. They also included scenes from James Ashmore's Creelman's uh, screenplay that were either abandoned or omitted during production of the original film. In the scene where Kong shakes the surviving sailors, pursuing Anne and himself from a log into the ravine, for example, directors Marion Cooper and Ernest B. Shodsack. Is that his name? What? Shodsack? Shodsack, I think. Sure. Originally intended to depict giant spiders emerging from the rock to devour their bodies, this was cut from the original release print and remains known to Kong fans only via a rare still that appeared in the magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland. Mm -hmm. I know that picture. You do? Yeah. 
I'm, oh. I'm familiar. You are a Kong fan. Yes. Uh, Jackson included the scene and elaborated upon it. Elaborated on a lot in uh, this one. <laughs> they finished the draft in 2004, and now it's time to film. Now, over the course of filming, the budget went from 175 to $207 million. <laughs> but it's not going to affect his percentage. No. <laughs> Uh, over additional visual effects work that was needed, and Jackson extending the film's running time by 30 minutes. Jackson covered the $32 million surplus himself and finished filming in March of 2005. This made it, at one point, the most expensive film ever made. Good Lord. Enter the Avengers. Okay, the film's length also grew. Originally set to be 135 minutes, it soon grew to 200, prompting Universal executives to fly to New Zealand to find out what the f was going on <laughs> but they liked it they liked it they were like this is epic this is great we love what you've done with the lord of the rings make another three-hour movie yeah go for it yeah finally peter jackson's decision to change composers from howard shore to james newton howard seven weeks before the film opened drew some attention they cited creative differences which basically means there was a massive argument that they couldn't be resolved during the timetable he goes on to score score says he's the departed and okay. will ultimately return to the welcoming arms of Peter Jackson for the Hobbit trilogy. Which you've been listening to quite a bit as of recently. I'm still like on the first disc of the <laughs> second Hobbit movies, Appendices. There's so much. It's so much. It's and it's so, so it's just much. It's so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you remember seeing this movie, Josh, for the first time? What did you think? Yeah, actually, at the time, I was working at a theater here uh, out in Bellevue. Hmm? It's now a gun range, if you're interested in visiting it. <laughs> okay. Back then, you actually had to like build the prints when they would come in. Okay. You have to put them together. And so we would screen them the night before they were going to go up just to make sure that they were still in good shape and everything. Huh. So I got to watch it the night before it came out. Off of a print that I had built myself. Right. And then I would go on and watch it like in bits and pieces. It kind of became my go-to movie to like check out in between doing other stuff at the theater. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, I remember I was coming off the high of the Lord of the Rings movies and where I was introduced to Peter Jackson. I didn't know he did the Frighteners at the time. Oh, okay. I had seen the Frighteners beforehand. I thought it was a cool movie. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't wait to see how he would do Kong. I was like, yes, something, another epic movie. Yes. I'm loving these. They, how could a three-hour movie be wrong? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I was hoping for a much longer and more intricate story of the 1933 film. And I got it. <laughs> <laughs> but now let's dive into this movie. Anne, I want you to imagine a handsome explorer bound for the Far East. You're filming in the Far East? Singapore. On board ship, he meets a mysterious girl. She's beautiful. She's fragile, haunted. And she can't escape the feeling that forces beyond her control are compelling her down a road from which she cannot draw back. It's as if her whole life has been a prelude to this moment. This fateful meeting that changes everything. And sure enough, against her better judgment, she falls in love. Yes. But she doesn't trust it. She's not even sure if she believes in love. Uh, really? If she loves someone, it's doomed. Why is that? Good things never last, Mr. Denham. So you're interested. Good. That's settled then. Now, I don't want to rush you, but we are under some time pressure here. Well, I really... Anne, I'm telling you, you're perfect. Look at you. You're the saddest girl I've ever met. You're going to make them weep, Anne. You're going to break their hearts. In 1933, during the Great Depression, vaudeville actress Anne Darrow is unemployed and hungry in New York City. Josh, I got to say, those credits at the beginning were a nice touch. Yes. I loved that. I thought... But then I was like, do them all that way. Like... Do all the credits. Right. Don't just do like starring. Here it is. Yeah. <laughs> I think people need to watch this movie to see what a depression actually looks like. <laughs> I'm thinking we've lost perspective a bit. Got a bit hyperbolic today. Yeah. We don't have necessarily the, the food lines and the employment lines and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, these are great sets, though. Great oh, yeah. set. The set dressing was awesome. It looked like legit Hoover Town. Yes. <laughs> it's it's it is depressing to to watch it. It is, yeah. And, and but and again, everyone is struggling. But you know, 
Let's focus on the entertainer. Yes. Thanks, Hollywood. Proving again you know what people really care about. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For a struggling actress, maybe choosing Naomi Watts isn't the best choice. She's too pretty to be shrugged off by a talent agent in 1933. Yes. After you go through the Hoover Town and you see all the other people who who look so downtrodden. Yeah. And then you light upon Naomi Watts' face and it's like, oh, okay. It's why I think Kate Winslet would have been a better choice. Mm -hmm. Simply because, first of all, She's um, she's got more of a full figure, mm-hmm. you know. Naomi Watts is pretty by nineteen nineties two thousand standards, where you're a waif, right? But nineteen thirties was a different thing. Yeah, she's a wisp of a thing. Uh huh. She blow away in the wind. Yep. Uh, and did that agent just send her to a porn set? Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> Go to a snuff film, babe. <laughs> Uh, then we get Carl Denham watching one of his films in front of the studio heads, and it reminds me of when George Lucas must have been looked like when he was previewing the Phantom Menace at Lucasfilm. <laughs> oh, yes. Carl Denham is why we have studio interference today. Dude didn't have a plan, and now we have studios that have and want total control. Don't you think it's always been a fight? Yeah. That's probably why Jackson wrote it in. <laughs> yeah. He has a lot to say passive-aggressively in this movie. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, did you like Jack Black in this role? It's weird. At first, it, he's a little hard to take because mm-hmm. he's Jack Black. Right. You just see him as Jack Black. And I think as it goes on, he actually like he acquits himself pretty nicely. I remember seeing this. And at the time, we were coming off of you know, a bunch of his comedic roles. He'd just done School of Rock and all that. Right. And here, I remember seeing this going, oh, this will be his turn. Right. He's not going to Will Ferrell himself. He's, you know, because my fear was that he was going to Will Ferrell himself and just be like, you've done so many comedies in a row. That's all you are now. And now your cachet's down. Right. Jack Black. You could easily get Jack Black. Like Melissa McCarthy did it to, her, to herself. And Jack Black turned it on this one. I was like, oh, this is not a comedic role. Right. I mean, he's funny, but not that funny. Yeah. He's not falling down and farting and whatnot. Yeah. But then he says things like, I'm really good at crapping the crappers. <sighs> Thanks, <sighs> Tenacious D. <laughs> with, with that twinkle in his eye. <laughs> uh, Carl's about to leave on a tramp steamer to finish his latest movie in Singapore. And he has been looking for an actress to replace the leading lady who's dropped out. <laughs> he dropped Mae West in there. That was yeah, cute. that's cute. <laughs> I wonder who will be available to be in this picture. My guess, everyone's schedule is clear because of, you know, the depression. A <laughs> uh, fun fact, the sex business will never, will, will always survive an economic hardship. It will always survive. The one place she could have gotten work. And she wouldn't go in. No. Well, and he didn't either. They both, they, they neither one of them crossed the threshold, which keeps their purity even though they both told they were going to go in. Which is funny because you saw the women walking in, and my first thought was, is that like extras from Les Mis? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I understand you want to look like harlots, but damn. <laughs> uh, when Anne steals an apple, filmmaker Carl Denham comes to her aid producing a nickel that she dropped, so she dropped in quotes, yeah. so she can pay the vendor. He convinces Darrow to take the part. She's persuaded when she learns that the script is being written by her favorite playwright, Jack Driscoll. I'm someone you can trust. I'm a movie producer. <laughs> yeah, that got a big old eye roll. Peter Jackson, passive aggressive, <laughs> which is weird because you you saw the deal he got. He didn't need to be. He could have been thankful. Yes. <laughs> uh, then she says, I make people laugh. That's what I do. And honestly, I just would have liked to have seen her do that at some point before this comment. <laughs> yeah. In a little montage at the beginning, supposedly. There's like a five second shot of her doing vaudeville. Yes. But. Come on. <laughs> they're, they're setting up the what happens later. She's not a funny person. No. <laughs> uh, as the ship prepares to sail, a departure Carl has hurried along because his backers have already pulled the plug on his funding. <laughs> Driscoll stops by to drop off the script. However, he hasn't finished it yet. Carl distracts Jack by writing him a check. The delay is just long enough for the ship to cast off, trapping Jack on board and assuring Carl that the now captive scriptwriter will complete his task. Jimmy, the youngest member of the crew, is reading Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And if you're wondering why that sentence feels out of place, so does that storyline. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've got to ask this now. Do you feel, do you like the fact that this is taking place in 1933? Or do you think it should have taken place in contemporary times? I like it back in 1933. You do? Yeah. Okay. See, I, I after what, at the beginning of this, I was like, I love this homage. I love what they're doing. And by right. the end, I was like, they, I felt that they, they should have just reimagined it for today. Okay. Only because I feel like the original Kong was better. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I can see it. It just moves. It definitely does. Yeah. Yeah. Where this one, there's a lot of lingering. There's a lot of watching to do. Yes. Yeah. 
the captain questions Anne Darrow and why she'd take the risk on his vessel. What risk is the captain talking about? He doesn't even know the plan yet. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just getting with Carl Denham is that risky. Yeah. But then everybody's taking that risk, so they should all feel pretty good. Yes. Misery loves company. Uh, tiniest script ever. 15 pages. Ooh. <laughs> Like, I love that he looks at it and then leafs through it like, maybe there's more hidden in here. Right. <laughs> uh, if I was Jack, I'd throw Denim's ass off the boat. <laughs> we get a shot of Coach Taylor. Welcome to the movies, Coach. Looking all handsome and whatnot. Yeah. What was his name? Baxter, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, is Adrian Brody the Elizabeth Moss of men? Where some people find him handsome and some find him hideous. There's nobody that thinks he's There's nobody in between. <laughs> Like, I think Elizabeth Moss is hot in the yeah. right light. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think about Adrian Brody? Uh, Adrian Brody, again, he's the pianist and he's also the, the badass in Predators. Yes. <laughs> I don't know who he is. Uh, damn, that's a lot of chloroform on that boat. <laughs> okay. What were they planning on doing? <laughs> what, what was the plan? So was the chloroform for all the animals already on the boat to I'm, put him to sleep on the trip? But to keep him asleep the whole time? That's still a lot of chloroform. Yeah, it is. And like, I I saw that and my first thought was, <laughs> this isn't 1985, Marty. You can't just buy plutonium in your everyday store. <laughs> like, you can't buy chloroform in stores. Right. Here's big ass jugs of it. Uh, keep your prize writer in a cage. <laughs> I, I like that. Yeah, I love Carl's friendship. Yeah. And uh, we really don't need the Jimmy and Mr. Hayes angle in this movie. I think Peter Jackson got a little cute with the script. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't do a whole lot. It doesn't start from a whole lot. No. It doesn't wind up being a whole lot. It, It's there. I know why it's there. They have to give certain reasons that the original Kong did not give because viewers today question everything. Right. But so what? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Denim has a map of the mysterious Skull Island and he pays the steamer captain Englehorn to sail to the island before going to Singapore. En route, Jack Driscoll falls in love with Darrow. I love that Ann Darrow fakes an accent for the film. <laughs> Why wasn't she talking like that the whole time? Though? <laughs> uh, she's, she's stunning. Uh, when yes. did Carl Denham become a cartographer? <laughs> Dude, where does this map come from? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Why the blind faith of this guy who hasn't paid anyone? <laughs> Truth. Uh, there's Andy Circus, and then when he tells the story, when Circus tells the story as Lumpy the Cook, he passes the lines to Mr. Hayes, and it feels to be a bit rehearsed. Yes. There's a dialogue thing that this, this bothers me. Okay. Uh, I hate when dialogue does this. Either have one person tell the story with an interruption occasionally, or don't do it at all. It doesn't feel natural when it's as seamless as it appears, unless they've rehearsed it so many times. Yeah. Uh. Oh, Jack Driscoll's writing a play for Andero. Some guys just buy flowers. I like that he falls in love with her as quickly as this uh, <laughs> encapsulation has taken. That's all. That's all it takes. Well, her options are few on hey. the ship. <laughs> hey, there's Lumpy. There's Colin Hanks. Yes. <laughs> uh, the ship arriving in a dense fog actually collides with the island. And I've learned something about compasses from watching movies. If the compass is going crazy, bad things are about to happen. Nothing good comes from an unbalanced magnetic field. <laughs> the ship crashes and realistically should be ruined for the water from this point forward. The Titanic, this ship is not. I think it's torn up. From yes, the it does. Those rocks are unforgiving. Jimmy discusses the book. Oh, Jesus Christ, Jimmy. Uh, <laughs> the Heart of Darkness with Mr. Hayes, the first mate, observing at one point that, quote, it's not an adventure story. Carl takes the party ashore where they discover the ruins of an old civilization and encounter the unsettling natives. At first, all they see are old women and children, so they believe themselves to be relatively safe because, you know, women and children don't pose a threat. However, their seeming good fortune doesn't last long. One of the film crew is run through with a spear, get over here, and dies on the spot. The natives grab the others, and just as one of them is preparing to crush Denim's skull, Captain Englehorn and his crew show up and start shooting away at the natives. Pew, pew, pew. Jimmy and Mr. Hayes, here really just to prove the theme for the movie, which in the original was laid out by Denim with the line, quote, the beast was a tough guy too. He could lick the world, but when he saw beauty, she got him. He went soft. He forgot his wisdom, and the little fellas licked him. 
They didn't use the word lick once in this. <laughs> <laughs> Whole movie, three hours, no lick. No licks. Uh, this is where Peter Jackson is at his best as far as I'm concerned. He knows how to film a terrifying scene with horrific imagery. Uh, yet the closest he ever come to a scary movie is The Frighteners. Oh, so you haven't actually seen Peter Jackson's first film. Which was? Uh, Brain Dead. I have not. Okay. See, this is where you have to go back and start from. This is why you're on the show, Josh. Yes. See? You know things others don't. <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a, it's a by God. Uh, is it a scary movie or is it going to be like Friday the 13th? Okay. It's an entirely different thing. It's a, it's a splat stick movie. Oh, okay. 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 Yes. Okay. I can dig that. Yeah. Ah. That's pretty good. Uh, in 2005, this was an allegory towards exploration and expansion, uncovering parts of the world in an intrusive way. Today, people only see white people messing with everyone else. I prefer the former. It's smarter. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, this thing, as soon as, is it Jimmy says it's not an adventure story? Yes. Yeah. As soon as he says that, it turns into a horror movie. It does. Yeah. Straight up. Just one random kid standing in the middle of nowhere. Walk up to him off from the Mars bar. Yeah. <laughs> Chocolate? Chocolate? Yep. Doesn't go over well. Uh, is this a Peter Jackson trope? The slow-mo? Okay. But it's like a skip frame slow-mo. Yeah. It's, right. It's, it's not like a, like a true slow motion. It's like a stilted, very odd kind of slow-mo. Because I know he uses it in all the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit movies. Uh-huh. And I'm just wondering, is this going to be like his flat, his uh, lens flare for J.J. Abrams? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that if it shows up in the Hobbit films. It does. Okay. Yeah, there's always a slow mo. Yeah. And I don't like slow mo. <laughs> I don't, especially when it's as as long as this one. Yes. It's almost a minute and a half. Yeah, it just kind of keeps going and going and going. Yeah, I would have liked. I would have almost preferred them go straight to shaky cam at that point. Yeah. To feel the frenetic pace of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> ring an axe to a gunfight. <laughs> Natives <laughs> shaking my head. Okay. The filmmakers and crew managed to escape back to the steamer, but it's still aground. <laughs> While they work to free the ship, a native sneaks aboard and kidnaps Anne. Driscoll goes looking for Darrow after finding a skull charm on the deck, only to realize she had been taken. He alerts the others and they prepare to go after her. Carl Denham is so full of sh- how the hell does nobody see this? I'm finishing this for Mike. Shut the f*** up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that, that native, he's got a long pole. Yeah, you're all joking about it, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that native used his lifeguarding skills. Held him like a lifeguard oh, yeah. to pull him to shore. That was pretty cool. I wondered how often they had done this because they seem to have a protocol for uh, abducting women from boats. Yes, yes. And also for avoiding rocks in white water. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but then if the ship's okay, surely their flesh must be. Oh, totally fine. <laughs> That's okay. Another Peter Jackson trope. No one ever gets hurt from things that would hurt regular people. <laughs> <laughs> See, the hobbit's dropping off of a cliff. Okay. Darrow is dragged, struggling through the water and up the rocky shore. She is carried to the top of a huge, elaborately carved rock wall at the edge of the village, adorned with a necklace made of bones and claws and tied to a wooden framework that tilts out from the wall, carrying her across a gorge to a small platform on the other side. Out of the jungle comes Kong, Dun -dun. an enormous ape. He pulls Darrow loose doesn't rip her wrist off and carries her away. <laughs> now where the boats are headed is a massive cliff. I, they, they couldn't find a better landing area for their dinghies. <laughs> uh, these natives really know how to put on a show. I mean, lava drums, technology, not going to lie. Kind of waiting for Mola Ram to come out and pull out Anne's heart like temple of doom. Where does the lava come from? I have no idea. Yeah. No clue. It just, it's there. Yeah. Suddenly it's pouring down the, the front of that, whatever, statue that is yeah, i mean it looks really cool the oh, yeah. set's amazing it's elaborate set again oh hell yeah uh but we get kong finally it's what we've been waiting for and did you clock where in the movie this is i did not did you no we really should have though oh i'm gonna guess an hour yeah <laughs> did you like the size of kong or would you prefer him to be bigger <laughs> that's it that's a leading question. Yes, it is. <laughs> no, uh, I th I think uh, I'm I'm fine with the size of Kong. If, if, if it gets too big, then it's and then it's ridiculous at a certain point. Oh, well, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I can buy eighty feet. Yes, a hundred's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I, I'm going to ask this question again when we get to the skyscraper scene. Okay. Because it's much different than yes. what we saw originally. Uh, Naomi Watts, we now know why you got this job. Oh, Your yeah. scream is awesome. The camera practically disappears into her mouth when she screams. It's <laughs> great. You see the uvula just going back and forth. Yep. There. The film crew and some of the ship's crew, led by the first mate Hayes, go into the jungle to rescue Darrow. Go to the bunk, go out of the boat. To the boat, out of the boat. Yeah. They lost all these people, but not the woman. We got to go back for her. Uh, the captain gives him 24 hours. Where's he got to go? It's... He's got to get to Singapore. <laughs> got to hit the shipping lanes. Yeah. The jungle is a dangerous place, and several of the rescue parties die when they are attacked by dinosaurs, then by giant insects. Welcome to Jurassic Park. <laughs> uh, Christ, is Denim doing the I'm making this movie for Herb speech again? <laughs> yes. I know this is funny, but nobody would be making jokes after this. Yeah, he's the one person who is has a moment of levity. Yeah. And everyone else is like... In, within the movie, everyone else is taking it seriously, and Jack Black is like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, you're waiting for a fart joke to show up. Yep. Now, I get why this is here, but I hate that it's here. You need this to show what is going on with the crews while Anne is entertaining Kong. But Christ, you didn't need to have this much CGI. These worms would have looked so much better as practical effects. Oh, the, the head chomping worms? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're, it's that elasticity of the digital... Yeah. Paint that I didn't like. Uh, Darrow's attempts to escape from Kong are futile, so she entertains him with dancing and gymnastics. He enjoys it so much that he won't let her stop, pushing and poking her when she tries to rest. She gets angry, and Kong goes away, chastened. In part, it must be said, you know, or it must be said by a boulder that fortuitously falls on his head. Darrow, losing no time, runs in the other direction. Okay. When Kong first has her, he's shaking her around. Uh huh. That back is broken. Oh, and that, that run across the island, like her head would have been smashed against rocks. Yes. She would have been crushed. I yes. mean, even, unless he's dragging around women all the time and he just knows where the brushes are. Yeah. But then you, I mean, the dancing bit. Yes. I love Kong here. Circus is a genius. Yes. Uh, I can totally see how he turns this into Caesar and Planet of the Apes eventually. I mean, okay, yeah, I think this is our best look at Kong. And by 2020 standards, I think it still looks amazing. Josh, what about you? I think Kong holds up really well. Yeah. Himself. They put money into that. I yeah. mean, the hair still looks good. Yep. Because at that time, they I think this was the movie where they just finally mastered how to do hair properly with CGI. Yeah. And you can just tell it looks beautiful. And even even the eyes, they didn't give it like human eyes like they tend to do sometimes with animals. Right. They truly made it look like gorilla eyes. Right. Um, it's fascinating to watch and just his mannerisms and the way he, he affects and everything. And although I'm kind of worried about Anne because you run. Yeah. And then when you're caught, you run again. Yeah. You, you get the fuck away from this thing. It's huge. It's, it's not your friend. Yeah. She's got a little bit of an issue with, uh, her, her survival instincts. I think. <laughs> She doesn't know when to say no. Yes. Unless it's in front of a porn shop. Then she says no. Then she says no. Kong? No problem. I'll stay here. Strip him closed off? Nah, I can't nope. deal with that. Burlesque? <laughs> no. She quickly draws the attention of a carnivorous dinosaur, which gives chase, starting a long and heart-stopping fight sequence in which every escape takes her out of the frying pan and into the fire. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Kong arrives as the dinosaur corners Darrow. The ape picks her up to take her out of harm's way only to be forced with a second dinosaur displaying tremendous strength and determination. He fends them both off for a while. One handed when she's knocked out of his hand, he catches her with his foot. Jesus. Anne. the fight carries the four of them to the brink of a vine festooned gorge where Kong never letting go of Darrow forces first one. And then the other dinosaur over the edge, but the second one clamps its jaws on its wrist as it falls, pulling Kong down with it. He finally drops Darrow who becomes entangled. By the way, we're only halfway through this entire scene. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the convenient vines on way down. So unfortunately does one of the dinosaurs and the pendulum motion brings it dangerously close to her every few seconds. Meanwhile, Kong struggles with the other dinosaur also tangled in the vines some distance below. Darrow eventually falls to the bottom of the gorge, landing in shallow water, lucky again, bordered by grassland, but one of the dinos lands nearby and comes right after her. Kong, however, catches up with it and fends it off again. 
As the adversaries face off after a brief tangle, Darrow stands between them and Bex, reluctantly to shelter between Kong's feet where the dinosaur can't get to her. Kong kills the dinosaur by prying open its jaws when he departs. Darrow runs after him. He tosses her up to right on his shoulder. Okay. Whew. That's a lot of dino action. The worst part about this scene <laughs> is if you fell asleep uh-huh. during this whole shot, you don't miss anything. No. The story is still intact. Yes. Why am I watching this? <laughs> because it's such a cool scene. It is a cool scene. That's this is. I have a love-hate relationship with this movie. I love how cool all the scenes look in this. Yes. I hate that it's so fucking long because of it. <laughs> there's a, there's a couple that could go easily. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like a greatest hits album, but it's got like 30 songs on it. Yes. You're like eh, keep it to 16. <laughs> <laughs> Put out a volume two later, maybe. Right, right, right. I mean, Billy Joel figured that out. Okay. <laughs> again, this looks amazing in 2005. Uh, you can literally take a nap. I just said that. I'm not going to go into it again. Later, Kong and Darrow watch the sunset from the top of a mountain, and she tells him it is beautiful as she taps her chest to convey how the beauty of it has touched her. Eventually, she falls asleep in his hand as he yawns from exhaustion. When the ape falls asleep, Driscoll finds them, and after a battle with huge bats... They escape back to the ruins where the rest of the party have gathered to try to capture Kong. Touching scene. You need this for the final connection, I think. Between? Darrow and Kong. Not Darrow and Driscoll. No, no. That's just there to, you know, it's a love triangle. <laughs> yes. That's, he gets such short shrift. Adrian Brody does. Yeah, he does. In this movie. With, he had less connection with her than the ape does. Yes. Yeah. Well. We don't know how long that voyage was that they were together. <laughs> okay. I guess. Yeah. Th- these are the same people that say Empire, you know, it's got time problems. Okay. <laughs> uh, upset that the woman escaped, <laughs> a furious Kong pursues them back to the ruins to try to get her back. Daryl begs them to stop and to let the great ape be. When Kong gets near, she pleads with him to just go back, but he doesn't. He continues to try to get her back. The film crew uses chloroform. Boy, were we lucky that was on the ship in high supply (laughs) to subdue him. And after a lengthy struggle, Kong is captured and taken back to New York. Not going to lie. I'm kind of surprised that chloroform and netting worked. I mean, Kong wrestled massive dinosaurs, but this is too much. And that net, it doesn't seem like it really would do the job. No, I've seen him rip apart vines thicker than that (laughs) just moments ago. Yeah. He took apart a dinosaur's mouth. Yeah. Okay. But back to the dinosaur mouth. Yeah. That is a great scene. Like when he like pries it open. Oh, it's pretty cool. And breaks the jaw. Yeah. And then kind of plays with the the broken jaw. (laughs) I did see that. Yeah. (laughs) It's a great little moment. In New York, Kong is billed as King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world at the Alhambra Theater, where Denim and his producers show the big ape for money. They've hired another woman to play the part of Andaro in a reenactment of the sacrifice. They reportedly had offered the real and lots of money to play the part, but she refused, because now she's got problems again. Uh, Driscoll, why would she repre- It's the depression. You need money. Yeah. She spent a weekend with Kong. <laughs> 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 uh, Okay, as he and Carl's assistant Preston look on, Preston tells him that Denim was right. There is some mystery left in the world, and everyone can have a piece of it for the price of admission ticket. Driscoll comments that Denim can't help destroying the things he loves. When the curtain goes up, it reveals, <gasps> to the gasp of the audience, a Kong who seems depressed and lethargic. He perks up a little when they bring out the woman pretending to be Anne Darrow, because, but he becomes agitated when he realizes she is not the real Anne. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Although secured with chains, Kong is lonely for Anne in a strange and foreign place. Confused and frightened by the crowd and the flashes of the press cameras, he easily breaks free. The audience panics and runs, and Kong, who sees and remembers Driscoll, chases him from the theater and gets out into the wintry streets of New York as passerby scream and run for cover around him. Kong picks up and discards several young blonde women. Is this it? Is this it? Maybe this is it. <laughs> Apparently looking for Ann Darrow, working at the deluxe theater, Darrow hears the police sirens and people screaming as the ape creates havoc on the streets. Yes. Go ahead. Just, okay. How does, logistically speaking, does any of this work? <laughs> Go on. 
he he has to bust through the front of the theater when he comes out of it. Right. Where did they get him in? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, they have to tear out a wall, wouldn't they? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, there's there's no service doors that big. <laughs> I mean, generally the the doors are big enough that you could fit a piano through them. Not big enough that you can fit it. How and how big is he? What eighty feet? Is, he fluctuates in this movie. You know that. Oh, it's so sad though. <laughs> I I really wanted to be pegged to like one specific size. Yeah. And maintain that size throughout. Because at one point he looks like eighty feet, hundred feet tall, and then when he's by the cars, at one point he looks like he's only twice the size of a car. Yeah. And it's oh. yeah. Kong seemed bigger down the island. Okay. <laughs> when Kong finally finds Darrow, led to her by Driscoll, he picks her up and they end up in Central Park where they have a few peaceful, blissful moments to themselves playing on a frozen lake. What the f***? <laughs> <laughs> Did we really need this scene? No. No. Okay. No. And unfortunately, when people remember this movie, the first thing they bring up is this goddamn scene. Mm-hmm. Is that the one where Kong goes ice skating? Y- yes. Yes. And we have seen him kill multiple people at this point. I mean, <laughs> he was shaking around a bus full of people. Yep. He had his hand all up in there. One of the women that he thought was Anne, he throws. I was going to say, when you worded that, he had his hand all up in there. That woman. You know, he threw, that woman. <laughs> he threw her. <laughs> <laughs> he He's an animal. <laughs> Um, their quiet time ends when the army comes after Kong with artillery shells. I do like this jump back into the action. Yes. I like it. It's, it's, it, it's shocking. Kong takes Darrow and flees to high ground, which in Manhattan means skyscrapers. He climbs to the top of the Empire State Building with her, with the Air Force. When the Air Force attacks, Darrow screams to them to stop. But finally, the big ape, having put Darrow safely down, falls to his death. Around the body of Kong, a large crowd is gathered when Carl Denham shows up. Quote, the airplanes got him, says a man. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty. Killed the beast. Okay. Great scene reenactment. Yeah. I want to go back to his size. Yes. In the 1933 one, Kong is standing on that skyscraper, two feet covering both sides of the peak of that skyscraper. Right. And this one, there's a shot they pull out from, and we see the airplanes first flying by. And I think you're supposed to see Kong on the skyscraper, uh-huh. but I can't place him anywhere. Really? Like, I'm like, did, did they forget to put him in? <laughs> and then I see, like, he, he's coming around the other side, and he's so small yes. compared to the skyscraper. And I was wondering, again, did you like the choice to make him as compact as he did? It's compact. <laughs> For a giant ape, he's awfully compact. He is awfully compact. I mean, I think it works well with relation to Anne. Okay. You know, so that they're actually, because they have to have so much interplay. Yeah. And he's big enough that she can sit in his hand, but not big enough that, you know, when she stands next to him, it doesn't look. Yeah. It was necessary. You're right. Yeah. I'm see. I'm now. I'm rethinking this. It, it's necessary for him to be that small. Also, I wonder how they got him on the boat to to bring back. <laughs> I wonder where they stored him on that boat to bring him back. I mean, in Lost World, they dragged a t- T Rex back in the cargo hold of that boat. Oh yeah. Good point. <laughs> um. Okay. <clears throat> That's all, folks. According to the top critics at Rotten Tomatoes, it has a tomato meter reading of eighty four percent. 224 fresh reviews and 43 rotten. The critics on average gave this one a 7.6 out of 10. But let's take a look to see what those critics said about this one from the rotten side and see if they had a point. All righty. Time Magazine. Our response to the ape's doom, once touched by authentic tragedy, is now marked by relief that this wretchedly excessive movie is finally over. <laughs> Oof. Ends with a thud. <laughs> uh, silly. Pointless and obscenely overproduced. Rex Reed, The Observer. (laughs) The unrelenting computer animated action suffocates what seems to have been the movie's main purpose to expand on the Kong and relationship. Okay. I can agree with that. Yeah. I think Mike LaSalle from the San Francisco Chronicle, you're our rotten of the week. (laughs) (laughs) All right. 
Uh, the critics' consensus says, featuring state-of-the-art special effects, terrific performances, and a majestic sense of spectacle, Peter Jackson's remake of King Kong is a potent epic that's faithful to the spirit of the 1933 original. The audience score, which is the average <laughs> rating, that the audience gave this film is a 2.8 out of 5. 50% agreeing it's a 3 or higher. Okay. That's a drop. Yeah. Okay. Well, the movie's over. Were you entertained? And I'm going to say, yeah, it was. I love spectacle and action. I love watching Andy Serkis performances. I could watch those all day long. Yeah. He, he, they got, they got to finally give the dude an award or name one after him from motion <laughs> capture at the Academy or whatnot. Josh, what about you? Were you entertained? I have to say I was. Yeah. It's the thing. It's weird because at the same time that I'm wanting it to be over, I'm enjoying it as it's going on. Yeah. So I have to say overall entertained. Yeah, right, right. It, it, it's, it's like 5149, but you're leaning into that 51. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's figure out the awards got it right and whether this movie's worth your time or not. Okay, at the Academy Awards, you got four nominations. Three wins. Way to go. Uh, it lost to Memoirs of a Geisha, though, for Best Achievement in Art Direction. Haven't seen it. Neither have I. But okay. Art Direction, those sets are pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it did win for Best Achievement in Sound Mixing, Best Achievement in Sound Editing. Nobody still can explain what those two are unless you really know the business. And Best Achievement in Visual Effects, which I agree. Yes. Because I hated The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> that was the other one that I watched that year. I remember... Mm -hmm. A bunch of a bunch of people came in. King Kong, I watched alone. Why in the Witch and Wardrobe? A bunch of people came in and wanted to watch it ahead of time. Yeah, they'd read the books when they were kids. Yeah. Uh, at the Golden Globes, it was nominated for two awards and didn't win a single one. Oh. Because best director went to Ang Lee for Brokeback Mountain that year. Okay. Got to agree. Understandably so. Yes. And best original score? Well, unfortunately, James Newton Howard. Uh, John Williams did a movie that year, and so you give him an award. That's what you do. <laughs> if Williams makes a movie, you give him an award for this soundtrack. That's, that's what happens. Um, <clears throat> Saturn Awards. I love these ones. These are the best ones. Uh, well, no. The MTV Awards are the best ones. Oh, okay. These are the second best. Okay, so best actress goes to Naomi Watts. Uh, she beat out Jodie Foster for Flight Plan. <laughs> Understandably so. Uh, this, look at that. She beat Natalie Portman at Revenge of the Sith. Which is... That's was that acting? <laughs> That's generous. Yeah, it lost be the best costumes to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay, maybe most costumes. Yeah, yeah. It won best director. Makes sense. Uh huh. Well, no, I got a bone to pick here. Okay. Because Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins is in there. Okay. And I think that for me, I think that should have been best director because everyone has tried to do what he did since then. Yes. I mean, even he did it, and he topped himself with The Dark Knight, but beyond that, no one's been able to touch the, the darkness of that genre the way he did. Right. And I felt like the Peter Jackson win here was kind of like we're still on the Lord of the Rings high. Yes. Kinda. I can see that. Yeah. And it's, and it's all, also, you're remaking a movie that from 1933. I mean, they did it once in the 80s. Or 70s? Was it the 70s? 70s. Yeah. And uh, it made a universal ride out of it, but this was something different. Yeah. This is a true homage. Yeah. Best fantasy film went to Batman Begins. Uh, no, should have gone to Chronicles. <laughs> that was an actual fantasy. Yeah, I was going to say, is Batman Begins a fantasy film? No, no, it's a comic book film. Yeah. Uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire should have been in there too. Yep. Uh, best makeup went to Chronicles. Okay, should have gone to Land of the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, best special effects, King Kong wins. Okay. Yeah, I, I got to agree. This. It's Circus. Best writing. I agree. Batman Begins wins this one over Definitely. Um, and then, okay, now the MTV Movie Awards. Best fight. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Angelina Jolie, and Brad Pitt bring this one down. Oh, yeah. Over Kong versus the Planes. See, I would have nominated Kong versus the, uh, the Velociraptor Rexes. Yeah. Or whatever they're called. But even so, I'm sorry, Anakin Skywalker versus Obi-Wan Kenobi, that's the best fight in this. That's, that's amazing. It's the best fight in the fight. Yes. Uh, best movie, King Kong? Nope. Wedding Crashers wins. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. I Got see a stage how. Plot, stage five clinger here. I see how it is. <laughs> 
But let's consider the company it was in. Wedding Crashers beats out Batman Begins, King Kong, Sin City, and the 40-Year-Old Virgin? One of these doesn't belong. <laughs> Definitely. It's Sin City. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and there were no Razzies for this, thank God. But now we're on to our next segment titled Top 3, Bottom 3. This is where we talk about the three things we want to highlight in this movie. And then we go over the three things that are bad, unforgivable, or downright travesties. We're going to start with the top three. My number three, the look of 1930s Depression era in New York. Still looks good. Still looks amazing, even though half of it's painted. Number two, the nonstop digs at the <laughs> film industry. <laughs> And my number one, Andy Circus, you are a god amongst men. It is worth the price of admission just to watch you work. Josh, what yes. are your highlights? I've got to say, the the spider bug sequence Ugh. that was taken out of the first one, only known through that one, one still image, mm -hmm. uh, I liked that sequence. You did. And, I mean, the CGI is overboard, but... The way that they like clamp down on the score and it just becomes about all these like creepy crawly sounds and everything. <sighs> yeah. It was a pretty good sequence. Oh. <laughs> give, give me cold chills and not in a good way. Oh, that's amazing. Number two, yes. the T Rex fight or the V Rex fight, whatever. Velocirex. <laughs> yes, Velocirexes. Um, just for sheer spectacle of it. It is pretty cool to see. And you're right. The, the, the capper in that, playing with the mouth what he's done. Yeah. I mean, it's very animalistic. Yes. Uh, and number one goes to Naomi Watts and her green screen acting. She's more believable with Kong than she is with Adrian Brody. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Peter Jackson got the green screen right in this one. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Time for the bottom three. Time to vent. Yes. My number three. The Jimmy and Mr. Hayes side story. No, no, no. The side stories in general in this. Yeah. They all need to go. My number two is uh, three hours and seven minutes. Three hours. Seven <laughs> minutes. Not every movie needs to be epic, Pete. And my number one, the godforsaken ice skating sequence. <laughs> When we're about, when we're all looking at our watch going, is it almost over? Nope. We got three minutes of ice skating to watch. Josh? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, number one, the length. The length. <laughs> uh, I got to agree. Yep. <laughs> number two, the ice skating sequence. Mm. Yes. Mm. Just, mm. It, it wasn't as long as I remembered, but it was somehow even more embarrassing. <laughs> They're frolicking in the snow. And that ice is that ice must be thick. Oh yeah, that's, that's some thick ass ice. T h i c c. And uh, I've got Ann Darrow's lack of self preservation. <laughs> she runs to this ape over and over again when she doesn't need to. Nope. She could have like gotten in a cab and gotten out of town, but she goes. She goes back into his arms repeatedly at the end on the building. Yeah. She she climbs up to like another level of the building to be with him again <laughs> when there's planes flying by and shooting at him. I mean, yeah. But then again, at this point, maybe her lack of self-preservation is due to the fact that she's invincible. Okay. I mean, she has survived massive falls, <laughs> a ape shaking the shit out of her. Yes. A run through the jungle, dinosaurs... <laughs> <laughs> if I'm her right now, I'm thinking I'm in the bonus round. Yes. Okay, it makes sense. I could jump from this building and someone will save me. It'll be totally fine. She's got Lois Lane in her. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> we used an A to F scale here on the movie planet. A C is considered average. A is the highest. F is the lowest. If the movie is so bad it receives Fs from all the hosts, it goes to a new category of movie, the movie planet global killer. A category movie where Solo, a, a Star Wars story, resides. And you can watch it ironically and have an amazing time at how bad it is. So the question is, what do you give King Kong? And the It's not the drama feature. <laughs> this is an action-adventure film genre by 2020 standards. Okay, Josh, do you want to go first or second? Um, I'll go first. I'll, I'll get mine out of the way here. Go for it. I'm going to go with a solid B. 
Solid B. All right. And uh, any reason why? I think the, the length takes away, makes it not an A. The, the fact that the CGI is definitely overboard and it has that like plastically elastic look to it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Got to right. take away from today's perspective. Yeah. Takes away, knocks it down a few points. Understandable. Understandable. All right. But overall, I was I was enthralled by most of the film. Awesome. Yes. Okay. Look, this is a fun Sunday afternoon rainy day movie to throw on and blow your afternoon on. You put the movie on and maybe you forgot you realize you forgot to empty the dishwasher. You can keep the movie going, empty the dishwasher, come back and pick right back up where you left off. Maybe an hour later you ordered food, but you forgot to you didn't request delivery. God damn it. <laughs> you requested pickup. Well, you can leave for 20 minutes and come back with the movie still going and you're gonna be alright. It was ambitious to turn a one hour and 44 minute movie into a three hour and seven minute movie theatrical, let alone have the balls to make an extended cut of three hours and 20 minutes because that's what Peter Jackson does. I mean, he practically doubled the runtime, but did it need to be doubled? I think certain scenes deserve to be added and extended the way that they were, but others were simply CGI porn. This movie is way too long, but in order to remake the original, you needed many of these scenes to fill in the reasoning behind the actions. Mm -hmm. The time spent with Darrow and Kong feels like you're just watching a computer screen with an occasional Naomi Watts scream, but ultimately, you need it to build the connection between the two. I'm reminded of the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast. I prefer it over the animated feature because it gave reason for why Beauty would actually fall for the Beast in the film. It had to flesh it out when it's live-action. Movies need to balance between their visuals and the plot. If a movie has too much of one and not enough equal storytelling with the other, it becomes unbalanced and audiences can feel that. This movie has visual scenes that could be cut in half and still maintain the trust between Darrow and Kong. Denim's character, along with the rest of his crew, are overly written in order to give equal rate between their situation and Darrow's. But this is the folly of the movie. Darrow and Kong is the story. Denim and his crew survival is the B plot. It shouldn't have been given equal weight. When you see what Jackson does with the Hobbit trilogy later on, you realize that this film was the genesis of this directorial flair that super fans of PJ love, but general audiences grow tired of. I love this movie for what it is. It's Andy Serkis showing off how good performance capture and motion capture really is, and it started the conversation, especially after his portrayal of Gollum in the Lord of the Rings movies, that performance capture should be a category recognized for acting at the award shows. Serkis may be the greatest actor who ever lived so long as his face isn't used. As of today, he'll take this performance and evolve it into Caesar and Planet of the Apes, which in my mind is a CGI pinnacle. But this movie is a stopgap between Gollum and that performance. The plot here is pretty thin, and when you stretch it out, that thin plot gets thinner and lost in the branches you built from that stem. The acting is decent, and the dialogue, although thin because of the amount of action, is hardly reliant on exposition to move the plot along. Strangely enough, you could have this movie muted the entire time you're on Skull Island and you wouldn't miss any of the plot. Overall, in the action-adventure category, I've seen better put-together movies, so I'm going to give this movie a B-. minus. It's better than average. Kong deserved better. But maybe it wasn't in a remake that was needed, but a reimagining. Makes sense. Thank you. Uh, so I gave it a B minus. Give it a B. So that's going to give it a B minus. Unfortunately, because we always round down. Because I'm a math teacher, and that's what we do. Uh, which puts it right behind Live Free or Die Hard. Okay. So Kong is going there at a B minus eight point five out of twelve. All right, but it's still above Point Break. <laughs> which i have a hard time believing that's above point break yes if it wasn't remade so much better in fast and the furious Ooh, <laughs> them's fighting words okay let's get our critic stats off do you love this movie you like this movie you're none of the above i love this movie but to me it's a movie i only need to revisit every few years it sits on my shelf until one day i'm like king kong i haven't seen that in a while i got some time to kill let's do that i feel if i watch this every year i'd probably move this to like and appreciate it less and less. Yeah. But you need this. I think the scarcity of it elevates it in my mind. Yes. How about you? I also loved it. I think, um, but as you said, you can go away for a little bit. You can go get a snack. Yeah. Get a couple snacks, <laughs> hit the bathroom, <laughs> come back, and you haven't missed any of the film. No, no. We, we, and actually, I want to give ourselves a little bravo here. Not only 
is our podcast shorter than 2003's King Kong? <laughs> we also beat the runtime of 1933's. Take that. We told the whole story in less time, motherfuckers. All right. <laughs> Right, that's all we got time for today, Movie Planeteers. Next show, we'll look at Major League for the Ooh. Comedy Pantheon. Right in time for spring training, maybe COVID. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, you can email the Movie Planet using the address movieplanetpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, or Spotify, and give us a four or five star review. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those little sites. The opinions expressed on the Movie Planet podcast are those of the individual hosts. The Movie Planet podcast is not affiliated with, prepared for, approved, or licensed by any entity that created any films discussed or reviewed herein. All movie clips and music included in the podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Josh, any last words? Twas beauty killed the beast. <sighs> Deep. That's a long pull. <laughs> Thanks for listening and happy movie watching.